So uh, take, for example, the, the Commonwealth of Virginia. Last week, the citizens of this earthly kingdom had a responsibility to vote for their leaders. But how do we decide who gets to vote? Visible boundaries. Uh, so roughly speaking, if you live south of the Potomac River, west of the Atlantic Ocean, and northeast of White Top Mountain, then you live in the kingdom, we could say, of Virginia. But simply residing in a state is not enough to make you eligible to vote in an election. So in this area alone, we have, we have countless military personnel who live here temporarily and maintain their residency in some other state. So you must also register as a voting resident. Get your name put into a system. And so once again, this system of registered voters has visible boundaries. There's about 6 million registered voters in the state, in this kingdom, and someone or multiple people have access to this visible database of names. Some people's names are on the list and some people's aren't. Visible boundaries are essential for any kingdom. What then about the kingdom of heaven? If you've been tracking with us in the Gospel of Matthew so far, Jesus shows up as a king over a kingdom, and as he begins his teaching ministry, he begins inviting people to repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He invites them to submit themselves to him as king and to his kingdom. He invites them to a new citizenship to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But think for a second about the kingdom of heaven. There, there are no earthly boundaries. I know the Bull Islanders here might want to disagree, but you cannot draw up a map and say, as long as you live here in Bull Island, you're a part of the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work like that. There's, there's no visible boundaries. There's no physical locale where you can say, as long as you're from this area or you live in this place, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And, and we can't access either a, a database of names to determine who is a kingdom of heaven or citizen of the kingdom of heaven and who isn't. So how does the world know who is a, who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? As we continue to walk through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to learn that Jesus calls his disciples to gather in small groups called churches. And a church is supposed to function kind of like a, a kingdom outpost or a kingdom embassy. We represent the kingdom of heaven while living here in the kingdom of this world. The church we could say, is a visible manifestation of an invisible kingdom. I want you to turn your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. As we've said in the past few weeks, Jesus is, is preaching a sermon to his disciples about what citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what Christians are supposed to look like. 
kingdom righteousness. How do you live rightly as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And last Sunday, we we began by looking at the the Beatitudes where Jesus describes the, the character of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He describes what Christian character looks like, and he gave us these eight sort of snapshots of of how to tell what a kingdom citizen looks like. So, citizens of the kingdom of heaven recognize our spiritual bankruptcy in a world that's deceived by self-righteousness and self-esteem. In a world that's proud of its sin, we we weep and mourn over ours. We're meek in our interactions with others in a world that prizes arrogance and unchecked anger. The world around us hungers for pleasure, and we who belong to the kingdom of heaven hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are merciful towards other people, while the world cancels and shames those who don't bow the knee and get in line. In a distracted world, our hearts are purely, although imperfectly, purely focused on following Jesus. In a world overrun with conflict, kingdom citizens strive to make peace. And because of all of this, where we left off last week, because we behave this way, we are persecuted by by the world in which we live. Some of our brothers and sisters are physically assaulted. But all of us are verbally insulted and misunderstood. And in light of all of that, in light of where we left off last Sunday, the mistreatment that we receive when we strive to look the way that Jesus calls us to look, we might be tempted to say, why care about this world? If they're going to treat me like that, if they're going to say I'm that, why should I care about them? Our text this morning answers that question. Jesus calls his disciples, followers of him, anyone that calls themselves a Christian, to be a visible manifestation of an invisible kingdom. He calls us to show the world around us what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we're going to talk about in our text this morning. But before we do, I I want to tell you a quick story. Some of you have heard this before, probably most of you, but the best stories are sometimes worth repeating. Back in 2019, uh, we we took our last mission trip to Mexico City uh, before COVID-19 has since then interrupted our plans Um, For those of you that were on that trip or heard about it, you you remember we spent uh, almost half of our time in a town called Acambay, north of Mexico City. This this town uh, where there, as far as we know, no gospel preaching church. And so we wanted to intentionally spend time there. And, and we were driving into town, and we had heard through our contacts there on the ground that when we got to Akambai, there's going to be a basketball game. And so we're, okay, we're going to play a pickup basketball. That's fine. And we, we pull in our van into town, and we're thinking we're going to go to our rooms and relax for a little bit and have a little bit of time to chill. And they say, no, you got to go to the game now. And I remember thinking as we enter into the vehicle, this doesn't really make sense. I mean, 
we're just playing basketball. Why does it matter if we're there now? And then once we exited the vehicle, all of a sudden, it made sense. We walked into a gym filled with people in the stands and concessions being sold at the entrance with a real legit basketball team dressed in orange uniforms and a coach and referees in pinstripes and a a, a timekeeper and a scorekeeper. This had been billed as a great Mexico versus USA basketball matchup. If you know anything about me, why are you laughing? I didn't even say anything. (laughs) If you know anything about me, you know that athleticism and coordination are not my personal strengths. Listen, I have a hard time staying coordinated with my remote uh, playing Madden on my PlayStation. That enough is like I got to work two joysticks at the same time. This is hard. I don't think I've ever felt more out of place in my life than on that basketball court that night in Akambay, Mexico. I am not a basketball player, and the, the pressure to try to be a basketball player was paralyzing. In case you were wondering, I did not rise to the challenge. I failed to score a single point as long, uh, alongside most of my teammates, so it wasn't just me. <laughs> including the really tall one over there laughing really hard. (laughs) I'm fairly certain I turned the ball over multiple times. A few minutes into the game, the Mexican crowd was chanting, USA, USA. They were mocking us. We let you down, I'm sorry. And uh, within a few minutes into the game, the other team realized who they were dealing with, that this isn't what we thought. And so they, they actually loaned us three of their players for the rest of the game. It was that bad. So here's why I share that story. When Jesus talks about the influence that Christians are supposed to have in this world, when you hear Christian, you're supposed to be a visible expression of an invisible kingdom. You're supposed to show the world what kingdom citizens look like. You might feel just like I felt on that basketball court that night. This seems like an impossible challenge. People are watching you. The opposition seems unbeatable. And the high standards that Jesus set seem absolutely unreachable. So let me begin by encouraging you of something, Christian. Unlike me and my teammates, with the exception of Mark Loffenberger, we are not basketball players. Jesus, when he calls you to be salt and light, he is not calling you to be something that you aren't. He is calling you to be who you are in Christ. Look at the text real quick with me. Verse 13. What are the first two words in verse 13? Say it out loud. You are. Look at verse 14. First two words. You are. Not you must be, you should be, I want you to be, I hope you will be, but you are. So Jesus does not begin by giving us a checklist, but by showing us a mirror and saying, listen, followers, 
If you are in me, this is who you are. Now live like it. None of us are any of this naturally. But everyone in this room who is a follower of Jesus, this is who you are supernaturally. Because the Spirit has begun His work in you. So if we're going to be the, the visible manifestation of an invisible kingdom, we need to remember who we are. And I want to show you three truths about who we are from this text. Number one, we are different. We are different. Let's read the whole passage together one more time. Jesus says, Matthew five thirteen, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus uses two metaphors. We'll dive into them in just a moment. Two metaphors, salt and light, to illustrate the type of influence that Christians are supposed to have on the world around us. Before we zoom in on those metaphors, looking at the whole, what's the big lesson that Jesus is teaching us? John Stott puts it this way. He says, the basic truth which lies behind these metaphors and is common to both of them is that the church and the world are distinct communities. In other words, we are different. Look again at the passage. You are the salt of the earth. So in other words, some, Jesus' followers, are salt. Everybody else, earth. Or the next verse, verse 14, you are the light of the world. Some are light. Everybody else is the world. Two distinct communities. In fact, the, the you are in both verses 13 and 14, is emphatic as if Jesus is saying, you and only you are the salt of the earth. You and only you are the light of the world. Christians are called to live and look different. Listen to me, follower of Jesus in this room. Christians trying to look like the world is as silly as unsalty salt or dark lights. It doesn't make any sense. Now, now some of you are at the age where, where you don't really care if you look like you're the world or not. Others of you are at an age of life where it's quite tempting to look like the world around you. And even in your temptation to, 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 to kind of buck the system and not just be like everybody else and be kind of a counterculture. You become its own, your own kind of like the world sort of niche group. But listen to me. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, stop trying to look like the world around you. We are different. 
So just from the outset, Christian, let me ask you, if you're in this room and, and you're a follower of Jesus, how does your life look different from those around you? Is there any difference between your entertainment and theirs? Between your finances and theirs? Do you spend your money differently? Do you save your money differently? Do you give your money differently? Your schedule how does your schedule compare to the world around you? Your politics, your parenting, your marriage, your time, the way you view work, your hobbies. Is there a difference between you and the world around you? And what about us as a church? As a church, when we gather here every Sunday, listen to me, we ought to be okay that this place is a little weird, in a sense. Now, think about some of the things that we do. We gather here, and we pray for a long time, or we all stand up and we sing together, or we all sit down and mostly quietly try to listen to a preacher preaching a sermon. For 40, 45, 50 or so minutes. Those are weird things. And for someone who, who maybe has never been in church before or, or never really been a part of a church before, to come into this room ought to be a little bit uncomfortable. By the way, our goal is not to make you uncomfortable if that describes you this morning. But our goal is simply to, to follow God's word and how it describes a church gathering should look. And because it's so different from anything out there, it ought to be uncomfortable. And we ought to be, by and large, okay with that. It's foolish for us to strive to be as comfortable as possible for those that don't know Christ. Now, we ought to be comforting to them. We ought to be loving and gentle and not be rude or make them uncomfortable on purposes. It's not like, you know, if you're visiting, we're going to make you sit on the spiky chair, you know, make you as uncomfortable as possible. No, that's not the point. But simply in doing the things that Christians do, singing praises to our God, praising his name through prayer, confessing our sins, bringing our request to him, all of those things should feel somewhat strange to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. And yet we do them. Why? Because Christians are different. So if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus and you think you, that we're a little bit weird in here, that's okay. Hopefully we have at least enough self-awareness to admit following Jesus is a little bit strange to the world. We're not supposed to look the same. We are different. But there's, there's a danger here that we must avoid as well. Some, in, the, in their zeal for Christians to look different, withdraw from the world. This, this was the era in church history of monasticism, kind of isolating yourself in, in Christian communities where you're separated completely from the world. 
Listen, Jesus intends salt to have an effect in the world. We cannot withdraw from the world and be salty in the world. We cannot let our light shine to a dark world if we're withdrawn from them. So Jesus says in John 17, then his prayer to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We are in this world, but not of it. Can we just admit, brothers and sisters, that that's a hard place to live? And for you, this is the place you live your entire Christian life as a citizen of a kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven, while also living among the citizens of the kingdom of this world. But that's what we're called to be. If we're going to be a visible manifestation of an invisible kingdom, we have to recognize that we are different. We have to be okay with that. Number two, second truth from the text is that we are salt. We are salt. Look at verse 13 again. You are the salt of the earth. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? And one Bible scholar examined 11 different uses of salt in the ancient world. It was sometimes used as currency, sometimes as fertilizer, sometimes as a seasoning, and all sorts of other uses. Uh, but Jesus has something more specific in mind. Uh, most scholars agree that, that the primary use of salt in Jesus' day was as a preservative. And that's almost, almost certainly what Jesus is talking about when he says that we are the salt of the earth. So today, if you go to the store after church and you buy some delicious bacon, where do you put the bacon before you prepare it? You put it in your refrigerator, right? Now, now we don't often realize what a marvel modern refrigeration really is. Uh, to be able to have meat kept cold in a refrigerator is something that has been unheard of for most of human history. So often what the ancients would do is they would rub their meat with salt and that would preserve it. That would allow it to last longer. Salt would keep the meat from decaying. And there we see what Jesus intends for us to understand about being salt. We live in a world that is going bad. It's decaying. A world of, that's decaying. It's filled with sin. Ever since the fall, this world, in every generation, in every culture, in every age, everywhere on planet Earth, has been prone to corruption and decay. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, the world is like meat, which has a tendency to putrefy and to become polluted. It's like something which can only be kept wholesome by means of a preservative or antiseptic. As the result of sin and the fall, life in the world in general tends to get into a putrid state. That, according to the Bible, is the only sane and right view to take of humanity. Far from there being a tendency in life in the world to go upwards, it is the exact opposite. The world, left to itself, is something that tends to fester. End quote. Is that the way you see the world? Prone to decay. Rather than, brother, sister, friend, rather than being shocked at how bad the world is, 
You ought to instead be shocked at how much goodness there remains in this world. That you can go to a place like Food Lion or Walmart or Target and there's just not widespread looting all the time. The fact that there's usually order. People usually get in line and they usually pay for their things and they usually are respectful. That ought to shock you. Oh my goodness, this is crazy. If you know how corrupt the human heart is and how corrupt uh, the influence that we have apart from Christ on society, everything tends towards decay. Jesus is saying, Christian, you're salt, and I intend for you to have a preserving effect on the society around you. You, by your very presence in this world, help prevent the decay that happens in the world around us. Let me give you an example of this. Contrast the American Revolution with the French Revolution roughly a decade later. Uh, Both revolutions were violent. Both of them led to much loss of life. But the French Revolution was especially cruel and unforgiving. It led to bloodthirsty anarchy. What was the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution? Many historians agree that one of the differences is that several decades prior to the American Revolution, we had here in this country a great awakening that occurred under preaching of men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Certainly not all the colonists were Christian, not saying that at all, but the very presence of Christian influence in this country kept us from the moral rot that spread like wildfire in France. We are salt. Or consider the violent and destructive riots that many of us witnessed on our screens last summer in our nation. I was talking to a group of pastors meeting over Zoom during that time when we didn't gather. And one of my brothers mentioned, isn't it interesting that the world seems to be absolute, in our country seems to be absolutely chaotic, turned upside down at the very same time when God's people are not able to gather. Isn't that interesting? We are salt. Jesus intends, Christian, that by your very presence, in a community, by your very presence in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, by you just being ordinary, faithful, following Jesus, you, you help prevent the decay and corruption that all of this world is prone to. Perhaps you've seen this at parties at work and all of a sudden you walk up and they say, oh, we can't do such and such if he comes to the party or she comes to the party. Why? Because we are salt. You didn't say anything. You didn't do anything. You were just being simple, faithful, following Jesus, you. And yet, by you being you in Christ, you're preserving the moral decay around you. Now, Jesus doesn't say that you are the sugar of the earth. Sugar's nice and sweet and pleasant, and certainly we should be sweet and pleasant as well. But just know that 
Sometimes the gospel is offensive. Sometimes things get salty. Sometimes people get angry. Sometimes people don't want salt rubbed over moral decay. Now, how are we supposed to have this impact on the world around us? Look with me at verse 13, the second half of the verse. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, if, you're, uh, if you know anything about science, which I don't, I had to Google all these things, but that's another story. Uh, if you know anything about sodium chloride, you know that strictly speaking, it's a very stable compound and it's resistant to breakdown. So, so technically speaking, salt doesn't lose its saltiness. It stays salt. But salt in Palestine, where Jesus lived in Jesus' day, was often mixed with other chemicals and it would become diluted. So, so Jesus isn't saying that Christian salt, that you're going to lose your saltiness. Here's what he's saying. Don't allow non-salt to get mixed up with salt. I think that's what he's saying. I don't think Jesus is saying, Christian, you better make sure you stay salty or you're going to get run over. I think he's saying, church, maintain your purity or you'll lose your influence. The church, any local church, loses our purity when we forget who we are supposed to be. We are a community of Christ followers, people that have turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about who's welcome to gather with us on a Sunday morning. When we open these doors for a Sunday morning gathering, they're open for anyone that wants to walk through these doors. But if you're a guest, just understand there's a difference between entering in this room and being with us on a Sunday morning and being a part of this community. That difference is what we call membership. So those that are members of this body are those that we say, you are salt. You're a follower of Jesus. We, see, we hear your profession of faith. We see that you've trusted him and followed him in baptism. And so we invite you into the family. If we want to be salty in this world, churches, local churches, have to maintain our purity. That we don't invite into our membership those that don't truly know Christ. So here at PBC, what we do is we have, a, and every church should have this, we have a front door and a back door. I don't mean the, the, the doors to this physical building, but to our membership. The front door for membership is a Discover class, offering that next Sunday, where we sit down with folks and we explain, here's what we believe. Here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's what it means to be a part of this church. Here's how you serve and, and commit yourself to this church. Here's how we commit ourselves to you. And membership interviews where we sit down with someone and we ask you to tell us how you came to faith in Jesus. I've actually been in membership interviews before with folks, asking them to tell us their story and heard someone say, well, actually, I've never really trusted Jesus because I don't believe that he really rose from the dead. Now, apart from a conversation like that, we could have invited into our community someone that was not a Christian. 
We don't want to do that. So we have membership interviews. We hear testimonies. The elders recommend someone for membership, and the congregation approves. That's all our front door. And then the back door for our membership is what we sometimes call church discipline. It's a painful topic to think about, to talk about, but if someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus, and yet in their life there is zero evidence that they're trying to follow him, then we have to pursue them to see if they're really in the faith. Invite them to be restored and to follow Jesus faithfully. Brother, sister, friend, I would just ask you to look at many of the so-called churches in our world today, and you will see exactly what Jesus is talking about. There are churches all over this country that are useless for the kingdom because they're filled with unbelievers. They have lost their saltiness. John Stott says again, when society goes bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? No one blames unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question is, where is the salt? This is why, as a church, we pray every single Sunday for other churches, We really believe that the the best influence on this world that that keeps us from corruption is faithful local churches. So we pray for churches all over our region and all over the world because we really believe that we are salt and we have a responsibility to show the world what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When the world goes rotten, don't blame the world. Ask, where is the salt? One more comment on this section before we move on. I think it's interesting that there is a command related to light. Verse 16 says, let your light shine. But there's not a command related to salt. Jesus doesn't say, stay salty. He doesn't say, keep the world from decaying. I think what he's saying is, listen, if you are faithful to maintain your purity as a church, this is the effect that you will have. So we need to remember that we are salt. Number three, we are light. We are light. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The world is not only decaying, the world is in darkness. Now, if you talk to people that don't know Jesus, or you listen to them on television or radio or in the movies or in the news, uh, they're going to sound and seem really enlightened. They're going to seem like they've got a lot of things figured out, and, and, and frankly, they're going to seem a lot smarter than, than you and me. But... If we trust what God's word says about this world around us, the truth is no matter how enlightened they seem, they are blind. They're in darkness and they don't even know it. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, that's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we live in this world that is not only decaying, prone towards great evil and anarchy, but it's also dark and blind, and they don't even know that they're in darkness. And Jesus says to Christians, you are the light of the world. 
Now, if you know the New Testament, you might remember that the phrase light of the world elsewhere refers to Jesus himself. All right, so John 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, so which is it? Are, are Christians the light of the world? Or is Jesus the light of the world? Yes. Yes. Jesus is the light of the world. And if he is the sun, we're the moon. And our job is to reflect his light. I, I think this should be very encouraging for you, Christian. Your job is not to stir up in yourself whatever inner light you have and let it shine. Your job is to gaze on Jesus. And the more you look on him and the, and the deeper you dive into his word and the greater you see his glory, the more likely you are to reflect it. You are the light of the world, Christian, because Jesus is Ephesians 5, 8 says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. How? In the Lord. Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you will no sooner stop being a light in the world around you than God will stop shining his light through his very own son. If you are in Christ, you are light. The question is, how brightly are we shining? And there is a command in this portion of the text to let our light shine. Look at verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And the same way, there's the command, let your light shine before others. The purpose of light is to shine, not to be covered up. There's an old Sunday school song that gets this just right. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Not a lot of lyrical creativity there, but it gets the point across, doesn't it? And this is the part where the, kid, the kids really love. Hide it under a bushel. Yeah, that's right. You did it. I was wondering, was that, was that going to work? No. And the kids just yell as loud as they can. No. No, you're not going to hide under a bushel. Why? Because that's not what light is for. It's meant to shine. So, so Christian, are you letting your light shine? And you might ask, you might ask yourself or, or say to yourself in response to that question, well, I don't know. How do I let my light shine? Well, think for a moment about what light does. Light exposes the darkness. So when I come downstairs in the morning and it's dark outside and I turn on the light, I'm exposing what was dark. What was dark. And often when that light comes on, not often, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but sometimes when the light comes on, I see a little black bug scurrying around in the dark somewhere. You know what I'm talking about, right? One of those cockroaches, right? The light comes on, exposes the darkness, and what wants to remain in the darkness flees to the darkness, right? Christian, you are called to expose darkness. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. 
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Um, one example that Holly and I recently saw about this was um, at the, the, the annual banquet for Karenet Peninsula. If you don't know about Karenet, Google it this afternoon. It's a wonderful ministry that we support as a church that's on the front lines in the fight for the unborn here in our community and at this dinner, we heard from a speaker named Ryan Baumberger, and um, he, he shared a lot about uh, racism and abortion, and a big chunk of his ministry is devoted to exposing what's in the darkness. Let me just, just share this one thing about, um, one thing that he shared in the ministry. This is about about Planned Parenthood, and if you learn a lot about Planned Parenthood from the media, uh, you might hear, here's this great ministry that, uh, that does all these things to help impoverished women, and, and what he's doing is he's taking the light of truth, and he calls it factivism, not activism, truth and facts, what, what does Planned Parenthood do? So breast cancer exams at Planned Parenthood are down by 64% in the last decade. PAP tests are down by 65% the same period of time. Prenatal services are down by 73%. Meanwhile, abortion is up by 8%, and profits are up by 277%. This is a brother in Christ who is using his gifts and his talents and his resources and his energy to shine a spotlight on darkness in our culture. Recently, I was reading a book about uh, pornography by Ray Ortland, And in the end of the book, he was talking about how Christians might fight this injustice and evil in our world today. And he had a really interesting application that I hadn't thought about before. He said, if God has gifted you to make a lot of money, make a lot of money and funnel it towards ministries and resources that fight this evil. What is that but using your light to expose the darkness? So, brother, sister, if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given influence, you've been given gifts, you've been given talents, you've been given resources. Use what you have to expose the darkness. Maybe it's art, maybe it's money, maybe it's a gift of speaking, maybe it's your career, maybe it's writing or something else. Use it. Use it to shine the light on darkness, to expose abortion and racism and injustice and sex trafficking and the porn industry and all of it. Wherever God has given you a passion, use it to shine light on darkness. But light does more than shine on the darkness. It shows the way out of the darkness. Imagine that you're in darkness and someone shines a bright flashlight in your face or you're there lying in the dark and all of a sudden, boom, spotlight in your face, light. That's not really helpful, is it? All you see is a bright glare of light. That's not really what the function of light is. Light is pointing to something else, not itself. And in the same way, Christian, when you let your light shine, you are not pointing to you, but to him. 
Listen to Matthew 5 again, verse 16. So that, let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen, that could be the purpose statement for all of the good works and the character that Jesus describes in this entire sermon. Why give like this? Why fast like this? Why pray like this? Why guard your eyes like this? Why guard your marriage like this? Why love your enemies like this? Why do any of this? Because you want people that are living in darkness to see the light. You want to shine on him so that they might glorify him. So how will people know to give glory to the Father by seeing your good works? Well, I would argue you have to tell them the gospel. I failed miserably on this score a couple of months ago. We were in the surgeon's office in Norfolk and um, meeting with a surgeon prior to Zeke's surgery a couple of months ago. And he's just getting to know us a little bit, asking us some questions. And at some point in the conversation, he asked, so you know, found out we had four other kids, and he asked the question that everybody thinks, even if they don't ask it, well, why did you adopt? It's like, I mean, what are you, a glutton for punishment? I mean, you got four already. Why do you want one more? And in that moment, I had two options. I could shine a spotlight on me or shine a spotlight on the Father. And sadly, in that moment, I did the former and not the latter. And in my fear of man, I said something like, you know, we just have a lot of love, and, and, and we, we wanted to show love to a little boy in need, and, and, and something along those lines, leaving that man to think, wow, what wonderful, nice people. And I resolved after that occasion uh, to memorize James chapter 127 so that when I'm asked that question again, I can say that we are Christians. And the Bible says that pure religion and the sight of God our Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. So we really love this Jesus and he adopted us into his family and we couldn't help but spread that love by visiting a little orphan in his distress. You're not always going to do this right, Christian. Often you're going to fail to shine as you should. But this is the point, not to draw attention to your good works, but so that you might use your good works as a means by which to draw their attention to Christ so that they can see him. An encouraging thing for me is that light is hard to cover up. It seems to find its way to shine and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be able to keep your light in the darkness for long. Maybe right now, even right now in this moment, God is using this sermon to press on your heart situations where you have not shown as you should. Conversations where you have not done as you should. Praise God, he's using even this moment to remind you to let your light shine. And maybe you're in this room and God is showing you, you don't really have any light at all. There's none of this in you. We would invite you not to roll up your sleeves and start working really hard, but to get on your knees and put your faith in Jesus. 
He is the only perfect salt and light. And it is only in trusting in what he has done, his sinless life, his sinner's death in our place, and his resurrection from death, that we have hope to do any of this, imperfectly or otherwise. If we're going to be a visible manifestation of this invisible kingdom, we have to remember that we are different. We are salt, and we are light. Now, brothers and sisters, um, there aren't any visible boundaries that separate Christians from the world that are geographical. But there is a boundary that Jesus has given us. He's given us communion, which is a visible symbol of his love for us. And when we take the bread and we take the cup, we, we, we are visibly telling each other and the world around us that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we intend to live as salt and light in this world. I'm going to ask our, our elders and music team to come and prepare for uh, the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. The text says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup just a moment, we're going to invite you to come to the table to receive communion. And we, we do it in uh, kind of three stages here at PBC. First, there's uh, a Jesus and you moment as you pray silently, prepare your heart for communion. The, the calling here, Christian, is not to be free from all sin, but to confess all known sin to the Lord. The calling here is not to be an, a worthy person, but to not take it in an unworthy way. So confess your sin to the Lord that you know of, and then praise him for his grace. And then when you're ready, I invite you to come to any of the tables here in this room, and there you'll have a Jesus and others moment. So come to the table, one of our pastors will pray over you. You'll eat the bread in a small group of friends and family around the table. And then you'll take the cup back to your seat and we'll have a Jesus and everybody moment as we take the cup together as a church family. But more important than how we celebrate this meal is who. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we would plead with you, don't receive the symbol of Jesus' love. Receive him. If you have not personally repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, we would ask you to do that today. And the next time we gather to take communion, we would invite you to take it with us. But today, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to talk to someone more about that, you're welcome to say to any of the pastors at any of the tables, can I just sit and pray with you for a minute or talk with you for a minute? And we will gladly walk away from that table, find a quiet spot and sit with you and pray with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you're a Christian, this is a gift to encourage you, to remind you of who you are in Christ. 
And so receive it with joy. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and prepare your hearts while Cliff plays. And when you're ready, at whatever point you're ready, 